This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right. Welcome to the 65th. 65. Wow. Retirement age. Is it? Not for us. We we can't spell retire. No, we cannot. And we should uh, welcome everyone. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon, family. Love you wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining the largest Africana studies classroom in the world. Uh, This next week will be our last class of the month. And then we're going to start doing it monthly. Why? Because I see y'all at the cookouts. I see y'all out in them streets, y'all without your mask and stuff. Do what you want. That's your life. But you need to get back to it. Um, yeah. this, this gathering happened during a pandemic. And where we're going to go is a narrative. So all of the breakdown of the people and the things we need to know will be available as a repository. We are building it like a pyramid that will be here thousands of years from now. Somebody's going to be able to go in and learn about Howard Thurman and learn about S.E. Robeson and learn about, uh, you know, insurrection at Wilmington. You're going to be able to learn these things. They're going to be there forever. Begin to learn because it's just the beginning. So I want I want to practice this this movement right here. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the passing of the baton. You know, we have to learn how to both pass it and receive it. I was thinking about this right before we came in that uh, many of us are in here learning some things and our minds are being awakened and we want to run out and tell people all of the things, all of the goodness. And that's good. But if we haven't mastered a thing, you know, you can drop the baton on the way to passing it. Wow. And then it never gets to its destination, but we can fumble it. Wow. You know, and so I just I wanted I want people to just sit in that for a minute. You know what you admire most about Dr. Carr and a million books that we can't even see <laughs> is that he's read those books and he's able to pass the baton in a way from a place of knowledge. Even I'm receiving, but I sit and I let it digest for a minute. I don't just share it with folk. I got to, you know, and then I got to find my space in it because every time you and I have a conversation, there's a kernel that will sit with me and resonate in a way that maybe somebody else will, will have heard a, another thing in the two hours, maybe something mm-hmm. third thing, you know, and that's the thing that your spirit is awakened to lean into that, master that. You're not to master every single thing that we're here. Find your thing that you can pass with confidence, with that baton that you pass. Make sure you know what you're passing because there's a lot of shreds of information, especially on these internets. <laughs> and we're getting half a piece of knowledge. And, and the most dangerous being in the world is somebody that's not fully educated. No question. No question. a rule something. And it's a lifelong process. We we start education before we come out of our mother's wombs. And if we believe in many of the ways of knowing that human have created, we continue after we leave this plane. But we never stop learning. Yeah, most of these books, most of the books that I have, uh, Professor Hunter, I have not read cover to cover. I mean, it would be impossible to. But if you pick any book in here, I can absolutely tell you uh, why I bought it, why I acquired it. Um for a great many of them, I could tell you when and where as well and why and what prompted me to do that. So, for example, every time we have a connection, it drives me back into the library, which is why I'm so encouraged that folks have built libraries and well, continue to build libraries. That's the other thing that often happens in this society and something we work very hard to help people remember 
which is none of us are the first to do anything. Um, so, uh, so that having been said, as people have been building libraries, drives us back into the the, the work. And when it comes to the act of reading, much of, re of reading is rereading. So you have, I mean, again, another thing I thank you for among the many things you have required of all of us and certainly of me uh, to reread. And in our conversations, as, as, as conversations we've had this week, even uh, up to and including right this moment, there have been kernels, as you say, and you dropped something uh, before we came into this space now with everyone that just, you know, it's a little three word phrase that got me, but we'll get to that. But thank you. <laughs> thank you. you know. I just needed to get to the finish line and we, we can only get there together. So yeah. no baton should be dropped on the way. No. So I need us to just be mindful. I was uh, not just talking with you today. I was talking with Dr. Senyata because we started uh, this month, you know, building on the work of health uh, that, that W.B. Du Bois picked up that baton. Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And I was just reminded that, you know, we're not a lot of us have atrophied certain parts of our spirit and our brain. And part of this communing every week is to reopen and, and to, you know, crack it open and just like be mindful. We're here. All of us are breathing. Everybody who's in here, you are breathing. That's you don't right. think about it, but you're alive. That's right. And your body is functioning without you having to think about it. But we should be more mindful about what we put into our bodies, yes. what we put into our minds, what we put into our spirits how we connect with one another. And if we don't do anything else, like the world that we want to live in, we're responsible for creating. So that's right. Shout out to Sunyata. I'm in doctor. I'm in Calabash T because she is forcing me into a whole different space. Me, yeah, me too. <laughs> Again, this doesn't happen singularly. No, we are, we are knocking up against each other and like things are being shaken off. And it's like, Oh, but what about this? That's it's right. like a, a perfect, uh, um, basketball. <laughs> That's right. Shout That's out right. to you, Bron haters. Yes, he is not in the playoffs, uh, but it doesn't mean that you know he's not a good team player. So I just want to say. No, how, how about that? I mean, yeah, it's exactly right. It's all about the team. Yes. Okay. As we see with team sports, nobody wins a game by themselves. So. No, and you shouldn't want to be. Well, yeah, you definitely shouldn't want to since you can't. All right, let me not troll anybody. I'm, 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 no, I'm, no, 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 no. I want to troll the, 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 the Nets. I want to, but I won't. I won't. I'm going to move on. Why not? I mean, you know. I, mean, I want to. A team full of uh, singular players. All right. So. Uh, that's important. No, that's a metaphor. You know, all the master teachers know that the, the key to one of the keys to master teaching is metaphor. Teachers are able to connect things we know to things we don't know. And you want to be among many of the things that you have mastered as a writer. You know, you have long roots in that area. So make the analogy. No, we need that analogy because more people know about that than what we're talking about. I want to focus. I want to get off the screen because I just got the sauna. And one of the things about the sauna is your body is still burning even after you got off. So I got out the sauna, sauna I showered, everything. I love it. I love it. I'm sweating. So I want to get off the screen. Well, before you go, tell us Oh, what about those three words. We were talking earlier about the context and then, I, you know, you raise something in terms of what haunts our spirit, what often traumatizes us in terms of how we view ourselves and how we view the how we think about ourselves the way other people think about us. Remind me. Well, you remember you you, you we were talking and what, what what we're about to talk about now, and you say you know, 
not good enough. Oh. Say a little something. About, I know you're getting ready to make that move. Although I love it with the split screen, but I know you got to hate that move. But, but why did you, why did that come to mind? If y'all don't mind me just, I, mean, I need to put a fan on. No, um, no, go ahead. I mean, that's cool. But I, before you, before you go make the move so, and come back around, yes, you know. First happy birthday uh, would have been a birthday for Breonna Taylor, which we're going to talk about. She would have been 28 had she been allowed to live. I say, I say. She fights for us on the other side, but George Floyd and everybody else, but we would prefer that she had lived her natural term of life on this yeah. side of the earth. No question. Uh, but we were talking about, you know, this trauma porn that seems mm-hmm. to be, uh, you know, the the uh, all the rave. You know, we have many, many books out now. Publishers are throwing millions of dollars behind books that will remind us of our trauma and yes. our, you know, movies and television shows that will remind us of our trauma. And, you know, there's so many of us. And, I'm, it's, you know, again, I think uh, this is a tap on the shoulder. When you get offered these contracts and this money, it, it validates in your mind something that you 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 are worthy. And I was sharing with you how, and I've talked about this before, how very easily it would have been for me to tip into the other side of things. Yes. Because there, the commerce there, the validation there by folk who we have inherently for 400 years sought validation from. Yes. It, 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 it starts to like, you know, it's just, it's like, okay, I said, if it had not been for that one person who awakened in me and mm-hmm. who reminded me what I was really fighting for and cracked that open. Yes. Because the, the subtlety of it is here, Negro, here's a <laughs> for a book to write about your trauma. Write about your trauma. You know, What's your trauma? And for a young person or even an older person, many of us have never seen those checks, you no. know? And so it's like, oh, and then you win a prize for it. Or you get on a bestsellers list. No question. You get another contract. That's right. And you're on a speaking, t- and then you're out there making millions, and then you're you have a TV show, and then for the same book, the same trauma, and also the same attempt at the pantomiming of forgiveness. And people say, "Well, no, these books that are coming out now, these conversations we've had in the last year, have a lot to do with uh, making a better world." Yeah, they do, but they also have a lot to do with forgiveness. Forgive me. So how could that be possible? I mean, they're excoriating whiteness and they're talking about white supremacy. Yeah, but here's the part about forgiveness that is implicit in all of that haranguing. We'll get too deep into it. My man, Randy Matori, uh, wrote a whole book over here. Let me see if I can reach over into one of these uh, many stacks over here. Yeah, my man. Randy Matori wrote a book called The Fetish Revisited. It's very Mm. interesting. Marx, Freud and the Gods Black People Make. Matori is an interesting guy. He's down at Duke. Very interesting. But he opens this book with a talk he gave in May 2015 at Ohio State. And he and his wife had gone out there to uh, to talk about this work and talking about Marx and Freud. And, and he said they had a few hours to kill. So they were walking around near the campus of Ohio State. And I knew exactly where he was talking about because I used to live. I went to Ohio State. I used to live down in what they call it, short north in Columbus, Ohio. They said they, they saw this fetish shop. And he said, oh, this is fascinating. And so they went into fetish shop. And I think I talked about this before, actually, on the narrative side of y'all. I may have mentioned the book. And, and, and what Matori says is it struck him in, because the subject he's writing about, which, among other things, is about how whiteness imagines itself and the kind of fetishization of blackness. It struck him when they, they strolled in front and they saw the stuff in there, you know, the whips, the chains, the, the rubber stuff, the, 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 the black. This is a metaphor. Those black rubber suits. 
them cat of nine tails and getting beat up and that kind of thing. That fetish for blackness, that's a dimension of that fetish. And so a lot of this stuff, the anti-racist stuff and the Harvey, yeah, it's fetishized. Why? Because you ain't gave up no power. No, I don't start mentioning the $10 million you gave here, the $90 million you gave. That ain't no money when they made all these billionaires in the last year. No, don't do that. Don't do that. It's about uh, forgiveness. So a lot of these books with this question of trauma being raised over and again, they reinforce the idea that whiteness is so great because at and that whiteness is forgiven for its sins. Why? We gave some Negroes some contracts. And in talking about the sins, they still can't get past the aspiration to make us love them. And therein lies the real forgiveness. I know you abused me. But the founding father's vision were better than this. I know you abused me. I know all of the historical evidence refutes what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Somehow we must live up to the ideals of the founders. I know you killed my grandmother and you raped my grandfather. Hey, I know that. But, you know, somehow I'm going to forgive you. Why? Because I'm going to repeat that we should still learn the lessons from the founders like Washington and Madison and all those who had me. You know, I'm still forgiven. And I'm not talking about forgiving individual people. In a minute, we'll talk about that in the context of an anniversary today that we'll mention. But what I am saying is that when you started narrating through your life experience and what you've not only uh, written about, spoken about, communicated with folks about, but what you witnessed and experienced, it really stuck a resonant chord in me because this whole trauma at the center of that is this idea that somehow we are just not good enough. That is the real trap of race. And if we're going to build again with this baton, the, the point of movement is to keep moving. It's, it, it's, a, it's a movement, it's right? Moving. Forward. If I'm passing you something, you mm. need to go further than I have been. Mm. I feel like we're going in circles. And I don't yeah. want to have more circular conversations, which is problem, problematic with the, the, the books and, and the trauma porn that we are ingesting every day. It's a circular conversation that still gets us at the center. We're not good enough. If we start to spin away from that into who we actually are, then you know none of this happens without us. Not only are we good enough, there's nothing without us. That's right. So that's the foundation upon which we build, that there's no world, there are no people without <laughs> us. Literally. Then, then let's go back and rebuild and mm -hmm. reimagine and remember who we are and, and move from there with the baton passing. I'm not passing the baton for you to run in a circle. I don't need us to go, go back in the circle. In the middle of the circle is whiteness. That's yeah. That's the thing. So, that, that's so, so you know, even you know, and I, and I respect everybody that has book deals. There was a reason why I, I yeah, tapped cool. out. I there's a reason why I'm, you know, I tapped out of all of these mediums because when I realized what was required of me to stay there and to and to move forward and to be rewarded with contracts and more money was to diminish me. And, and 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 us and who we actually are because there's still a kowtowing to an ideal of who we are That's because right. we don't actually see us. No. So now we're many of us who sit in those seats are actually while we think we're doing a good work we're actually pushing out an image of us that's acceptable to them. Yeah. You wouldn't be sitting if it wasn't acceptable, you wouldn't be getting the book deals, you wouldn't be on the television, right. and I at and some point I'm gonna be working with that. And, you know that. Yeah. and we have to reckon with our support of it because a lot of us, if you're mm. somebody, 
if you're just happy to see somebody there. <laughs> right. Somebody, then, somebody there. Right. Oh, we got representation. <laughs> That's right. Somebody there. Right. There's oh. a specific place. No, no. It's all about context. It's all about context. And how do we remember? And, and we, the, using the metaphor of the baton, I'm reminded of a of a sermon that was preached um, inauguration weekend by uh, our our elder Jeremiah Wright, the great Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright at Howard. Uh, he can he come pre he preaches the Martin Luther King birthday weekend um, every 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 year, and this was the Sunday before the inauguration, the first inauguration of Barack Obama, and I'll never forget the topic of that sermon. Look who's in the stands, where uh, Reverend Dr. Wright gave the metaphor of the relay, talked about himself being a fast enough runner as a as a schoolboy, but not the fastest. And um, talking about running the four by four, those of you who are into track and field know it used to be the four by 400 meters and uh, everybody run one lap. And he was on the relay team, fast enough to be on the relay team, but not the fastest on the relay team. So they gave him the third leg. Some of y'all know about track and field, know about that. And the anchor leg, he talked about how the anchor leg made up the distance, but he used it as a metaphor to talk about the fracturing denominationally of the black Christian church. And he talked about how, you know, after starting out, there was, you know, this sense of uh, not so much denomination as the black church being kind of spiritual force and it formed itself into denominations. And then he says, you know, it moves through time, moves through space. And then you get to the contemporary moment when the thing just looks like it fractures. The relay has been handed off to all these various denominations and everybody's a bishop and everybody. I mean, it's just kind of disinterested. He says, but it comes back together with the anchor leg and we can maintain the focus to pass that baton off to the anchor. But then the most powerful part of that metaphor, Professor Hunter, was the title of his sermon when he said, and do you know how I know we have the confidence to pass this off? And of course, he's a Christian preacher, so the, the anchor leg got to be run by Jesus, right? But he says, look who's in the stands. You know who's in the stands? All the ancestors. Mm. So understand, even Jesus Christ is on the track. <laughs> you understand? But the ancestors, in other words, the create. So it isn't even about a linear thing where we have a beginning, a middle, and an end of human history. It can be a circle. But the question is, what is the context? What's the purpose? And when you think about that in terms of context and purpose, why are you doing this? What's your position? And look who's in the stands. Meaning what? We all going to go through that cycle of birth, love, birth, life, death, regeneration. We can't. Once we lose sight of that, we start comparing ourselves to things that have nothing to do with why we are in this process in the first place. This is the second time this has happened with us today. So right oh. before. Man, I had a conversation with somebody about a sermon that they heard. I think it was T.D. Jakes mm -hmm. about movement and that Christianity was never about. It was always about move. It was a movement. It wasn't a religion. Oh, sure. That's right. And, and the and the denominations happened when people got stuck, when they had a rigid way of looking and became, became monuments. Right. So, you know, the very first iteration, once they got stuck, then it had to be another version of it or baton passing to make it go to the next place. And as long as we're not moving, you know, we built a monument called religion. But if you believe in Jesus, it was about a movement. I didn't come to came to, you know, 
separate parents from their children. You know, I didn't come to save y'all. I came to break down all of these systems. This is about a movement, right? right. And if you're not constantly moving, that's right. Then you're stuck. I didn't. I didn't come to tell you who's not getting into heaven. Right. I. <laughs> and based on who you, how you look, how you not. In fact, you gonna find me with the people who you have shunned. Because who you did, the, what you've done to the least of these, you've done. Them. <laughs> In fact, Howard Thurman, y'all go sign up for narrative if you haven't. Because oh we had God. a long conversation about Howard Thurman and that book you were reading at the time, Jesus and the Disinherited. Facts. That's right. That's so, so tell us how this all ties into Brianna. Yeah, sure. This, this well, well, give, us, give us her, uh, you know, Brianna Taylor, who was slaughtered in her home, of course, in Louisville. In March 2020. Yeah, that's right. I mean, who was sent back to the ancestors and, of course, in our ways of knowing, which is why we call that category. Remember, in our Africana studies framework, those six conceptual categories, that third category is ways of knowing. Um, and that's because after we developed the first category questions, basic questions, social structure, who are African people and where, wherever we're studying to other people. And in that case, Breonna Taylor becomes a victim. Breonna Taylor becomes an avatar Brianna Taylor becomes a, a person who is used to signify almost like an empty signifier. She becomes a, a proxy for all the ills of the society. In fact, today's uh, New York Times, in fact, the cover of today's Times has an article, Tensions Rise as Movement Makes Strides. You see there. And a long form article written in today's New York Times cover uh, John uh, Elegon talking about all the fracturing and all the fighting, infighting, all the struggles that have taken place in the movement, some of the movements that have uh, emerged over the last year in the wake of the killing of Maude Aubrey and the Breonna Taylor and then, of course, Big George Floyd in Minneapolis. And it's interesting because here we are, June the 5th, 2021, and we see that the social structure continues to uh, intensify its efforts to translate. In other words, to interpret. What does this all mean? And to, it's talking about public disputes, and we're not going to get into any of that because, you know, obviously that's kind of, it's got a gossip dimension to it. But Breonna Taylor to the social structure becomes an avatar, as does George Floyd, as does Mike Brown, of course, as does Sandra Bland and so forth and so on. I mean, not even so forth and so on, because so forth and so on even then becomes the language with which we narrate these victims of state violence, Philando Castile, Laquan McDonald. We start narrating them. Um, we even categorize them by age, of course, you know, whether it be Trayvon Martin in Florida or whether it be Tamir Rice in Ohio, we begin to narrate them in terms of age. So become avatars in the social struggle, in social structure. But that's not who they are to us in the second category, governance structure. In the governance category, uh, which is the second of our six conceptual categories, when we're talking about an Africana studies framework, not the Africana studies framework. There are many different ways of thinking about this. But if we're going to be serious about thinking systemically and then systematically as well to apply. So systemically meaning trying to, to, to effect whole scale systemic change to improve our living conditions, to improve our lives. That's one thing. But then systematically, in terms of making this a conceptual framework, we can shrink down to ask questions that can help us organize how we're thinking. That's why we have these six categories. The second category, the governance structure category, asks who are Africans to each other? We don't presume a we. 
the we we're talking about right now is everybody in this conversation right at this moment on June the 5th, 2021. But in that we, then the question becomes, is there a we to have a conversation with each other about these things? And we, we, what we can see when it comes to a sister like Breonna Taylor, we see to us, she is a victim, but she's not a victim in terms of her being. She has been victimized. She's a human being who has been victimized. And of course, we know this society doesn't see her that way. And before anyone decides to protest, understand that uh, a white family adjacent to the apartment where she was murdered sued the Louisville police for the inconvenience of having some bullets, you know, pass them on the way to their ex to execute Breonna Taylor. And of course, the city of Louisville. Oh, yes. No, we didn't mean to harm any human beings. No humans involved. Yeah. So, I mean, so don't, you know, no, no. It takes the governance structure. Who is Breonna Taylor to, to us? Who is she to other people of African descent to understand that she, she was a victimized, she is a victimized human being. And of course, then the struggles that are interpreted in the New York Times or any other, you know, white facing commercial media publication, no matter how uh, noble and, 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 and important the uh, the intent and even the execution of the writers is going to be to commingle the social structure with the governance structure, which leads to it's the same dilemma that is faced in the commercial white publishing world. In other words, I set out with an intent. I want to communicate this, but I have to first establish that I'm a human being, which means some of what I was writing has to start by explaining to you my humanity. That's the first step backward into an abyss. And as an academic who, you know, has some familiarity, I think probably a fairly decent familiarity with that process, I understand that's the price you pay. In, in exchange for visibility. And by visibility, I mean white visibility. I don't mean black visibility, even though black visibility is often dictated by white visibility in this social structure that we live in. But that having been said, Breonna Taylor in that governance structure becomes someone who is, uh, first of all, a human being. Her humanity is not questioned. And then it gets complicated. Now we're talking about the parents of these uh, African people, these humans who have been victimized. And then, we, and then money gets introduced at some point or people become un- willing, not unwilling, that's not true, become uh, uh, inconvenient, inconvenience too light a word either. They become, sadly, they become representatives. I think about, of course, uh, Ms. Fulton, Sabrina Fulton says, you know, my wish would be my, to have my son, but I'm not going to turn away from the struggle because I don't have my son or Lucy McBath for that matter, Jordan Davis in, 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 in Georgia. These these are not women. Tracy Martin, Michael Brown Sr. These are not men who are who, who would not trade in an instant their children coming back to physical life for leading a movement because that movement is made necessary by the social structure we live in. But in the governance structure, you know, we find ourselves often at odds because of that pain, because of that trauma. And we have to remember to be kind to and gentle with each other, even as we are struggling with these things. But that third category, Professor Hunter and, and everyone that you raised with the notion of Christianity and religion, the reason we call that third category ways of knowing and the question of ways of knowing is what ways of understanding themselves, the world, reality, have African people created, engaged with, adapted, used, remixed, to interpret reality, that's what we call it, ways of knowing, and not philosophy. 
and not religion, because even those labels, calling something religion, calling something philosophy, comes with this kind of freight, comes with a certain set of assumptions that begins to narrow something that's very broad, ways of knowing. When we look at that category, we look at someone like a Breonna Taylor, you know, we think of her, we know of her as an ancestor. And, you know, when, when, when a person loses their life, the community recognizes that life. When the community, when, when, when someone loses their life as a victim of violence, the community recognizes that life in a different way. And when someone loses their life as an African person in a white settler co set of settler colonies turned settler state called the United States of America, uh, that takes on an even larger capacity in terms of how we engage in those rituals of remembrance. And so from Breonna Taylor, uh, you see the flowers and the candles and, and then the murals and then the and then the demand that the social structure establish something more permanent because they're going to be rituals of remembrance as they were on the anniversary of, of her murder. Um, as we saw uh, this week in Minneapolis, when the uh, social structure authorities moved to, quote unquote, dismantle George, George Floyd Square. And of course, uh, the many people who have gathered there, who continue to gather, they are pushed back. But the state saying, OK, is it time? Is it time? Is it time? OK, yeah. Do you ask, is it time for Ford's Theater down the street here in Washington, D.C., where Abraham Lincoln drew his last breath on that bed across the street from Ford's Theater in that house? No, you put a plaque on that and build a center next to it where people have to pay admission to come in and look at the exhibits and you restore Ford's Theater across the street, multi-million dollars, and you have guided tours there. That's not necessarily what we're asking for, because to do that same thing for George Floyd, in some ways, or Breonna Taylor might reinforce in the social structure the idea of freezing them as martyrs. And it might lead to a Nancy Pelosi saying that somehow George Floyd gave his life as if George Floyd went out there like Jesus Christ on the way to Calvary and said, you know, I could come down here from this cross if I want to. But as James Cleveland said, he would not come down from the cross just to save himself. He decided to die. Oh, he decided to die. George Floyd didn't decide to die. He was murdered. So Nancy, with all due respect, he did not choose that death. Breonna Taylor didn't choose to die in her bed. But my point is that while we think about these rituals of remembrance in that ways of knowing category, how do we think about reality? We understand that, yes, they are no longer physically here, but they also our ancestors and they fight for us and we keep their names alive and we think about them all the time. And in fact, we uh, we enhance in some ways their names with an added spiritual force. And I bring that up. Wait, wait I just because oh, I, I hadn't talked about the dismantling of the George Floyd Memorial. Well, you didn't this week. OK, please say say there was a reason why I didn't talk about it, because mm. I recognize that they don't respect us anyway. So the, the notion that we can put something up and they can take it down, mm. you know, like I, even the monuments, like I feel like all of those are distractions because as you mentioned, it's <laughs> African, the African way of remembering is to say their name and to pay homage to the person's spirit and what they did while they were alive or use, use their death as a, as a rallying point for us to build and do something else. These monuments, which a lot of us spend a lot of time uh, and I don't, you know, whether they leave them up or take them down. And I just feel like we set ourselves up for the disappointment that inevitably came. And it wasn't even a whole year. They didn't no. even wait like a year. and The man has been dead a year and change in May. 
How about? And they were like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. That's Ooh. enough. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do with that? What do you think? Um, and I struggle with this because I know for some people it's cathartic to have you know monuments to 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 our folk. Yes. You know, and I go back to the conversation we had last week with the formerly enslaved and those who were enslaved digging up those bodies of their mm. of those people who lost their lives and and put them in a mass grave because they didn't matter. But we took the time to 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 have enough love and respect and dignity for those bodies to make sure. And then what you said, there were children digging up bodies. Well, thousand school children who who weren't allowed to participate in that first wave, but then were brought into it after that had been done. And in fact, no, keep talking because in fact, you, you see, you always no, but but this, this one's close. This one is close. And as I'm listening, I'm like, you know, how do we have that same energy and the same uh, respect and spirit that those formerly enslaved children had for the mass graves? You know, because every day I feel like spiritually we have a mass grave in this country as well. So we have to unearth dig up and then rebury and, and do a proper burial. I don't know if that monument to George Floyd, you know, was the proper way to respect what happened there anyway. You know, we, 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 you know, we like to, I think in many ways we model them that they're, they like monuments because they have no substance. So you have to, you have to create, you know, the mythology and the, 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 the statue and you put this whole thing, you know, there's a scene in, um, Handmaid's Tale, where Lincoln's head is shot off. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not giving away too much. Like, all right, the Handmaid's <laughs> Tale. I mean, it's stagnant anyway. If you want, once you've seen it, you've seen it right? So I mean, the Lincoln Memorial mm-hmm. head is shot off, and I'm like, wow. And they turned the Washington Monument into a cross. Right. And I'm like, these folk, man, they awesome, serious. This is well, they, well, they, they, they make it obvious because already a cross. Because George Washington is their oh. God. And in fact, there's a book called An Imperfect God that talks about George Washington and, and enslavement. You know, there's a, there's a library of books written about Washington, right? But when you look at that uh, that fake Tekken, or the Greek call it obelisk, but the word in Kemetanetra would be Tekken. Uh, it's not an obelisk because an obelisk is cut out of a single piece of stone. That one's made of bricks. So once you don't make it out of a single piece of stone, it's no longer obelisk, technically. But it's already a cross. In fact, I gave a talk years ago at the uh, National Archives called Abraham Lincoln, American Jesus, where I said, you know, if you look at the Christian trilogy, uh, Trinity in America, uh, George Washington is the father. Abraham Lincoln is Jesus because he didn't decide to give his life up either, but he gave it up and became response kind of like the Jesus figure. And then if you look at a whole looking for a Holy Ghost, I say it's probably no greater candidate than Martin Luther King who somehow, you know, is supposed to project this rehabilitation of America by arguing that before America was born, the spirit of human beings was infused with the idea of a greater purpose. And all Washington did was give some some voice to it. And so be true to what you said on paper. And here I stand in Washington, D.C. in 1863, 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, channeling the words of Abraham Lincoln. But 100 years from then, the Negro still is not free. And so here's the Holy Ghost coming back 
to remind you of your greatness in the larger divine order. So anyway, that was just because I was at the National Archive and I thought it was an interesting metaphor. But to your point, in The Handmaid's Tale, they just strip out all ambiguity, stick a line this way and make that thing into what it is, which is a cross because it's a Christian nation because y'all will be so true to the founding fathers. You better go back and look at their secularist roots, including Thomas Jefferson, who cut all the religious parts out of the Bible. That's what the Jefferson Bible is about. But you don't want that <laughs> because your way of knowing would then force you into a different kind of dilemma. But yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So how should we honor folk like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd? And, you know, because, you know, following their, you know, putting up statues and monuments and murals, while it may feel good, it hasn't really changed anything. The week that Chauvin was found guilty, somebody else was killed in the very same place. So it's not changing. Because as Angie Porter been narrating on social media, I know y'all in conversation, they've yeah. already appealed. They've appealed along the lines. We knew they were going to appeal on. They even put Maxine Waters name in the appellate brief. So, I mean, we know, we, we hope <laughs> that he's going to stay in jail and not get a new trial, but uh, he's going to stay in jail either way. But we hope he won't get a new trial. But no, everybody don't exhale now. That's what the law is about. But anyway, yeah. How do we? And 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 even deep, you know, not even deeper, but you know, as we're having these conversations again, you know, our emotions are on a roller coaster based on what they do. So he appeals, he gets out, and we're upset. We're in the streets. You know, right. what happens? We're going to be mm. mad. Mm. No, I, I'm I'm I don't want that vacillation in my emotions. Let's let's have a little foresight, and then let's have a little remembrance, and and come to the to a, a point of reckoning. Like how how do we deal in this space that we're currently in? that um allows us to matter without having to tell you because it's not about you and you know removing that center that we're going around a circle that's them like i just i just want to well, i think our psyche from our <laughs> i'm with you no i think we have to be with each other on that that's very complicated because we're human and we're often fond of saying race is a social construct, but we're far less fond of living with and working with what that means. And the only way forward, and for those of you, again, very much please encourage you all, sign up a narrative, you understand? Because we have a conversation on John Brown, which I mentioned last week, but again, which is very important. It's very important because understand that John Brown was white, but John Brown used that whiteness to give up whiteness to the degree possible. This is in the 1850s and 1840s. In fact, the irony is Hudson, Ohio. And I'll just mention this very quickly because you all need to go to narrative for the rest, but I'm mentioning it because something happened. This week. Because, you know, what I'm also doing is we, we're doing that in two parts. Yeah, we, so, we, we had to. Right. So so part one's not available until part two is finished. Right. Because again, this is, you know, we're we're building something. So you yeah, narrative is different. Yeah. I don't want to just throw things up just because we have we got a lot of things in there that I have so people are like, where can I find the conversation? You know, it's like oh no, 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 no. Slow down. Yeah, yeah. There's enough there there right now. You can spend a whole year and still not have not just everything. But you know, there's a particular drum beat, and I feel like we also, you know, we're so excited that we haven't figured, remembered how to build. Like you talked about, even the obelisk, that's one single stone. Yeah, and, and, and if it cracked, I mean, every time we go to Kemet, we go to a stone quarry in, in the Swan 
where Hatshepsut from the uh, New Kingdom in Kemet would build, as you know, build her uh, her tech and her had her things built. And when you see, you start in a granite quarry. It's that red granite. And then you have tools that are very, very simple tools, copper tools. But you start stone on stone with the harder stone. And you're literally pounding the stone until you can get enough in there to put a little crack in. And then you put some wood down there, set the wood on fire, and then pour water in order to crack the stone open enough so you can begin to carve and shape out. Now, what happens after you've done the length? And y'all seen two of those obelisks, Hatch, Hatshepsut's uh, Tekken, still stand in a petty soot. So you see, you know, Karnak, Thebes, Luxor, you see these, man, it's all, and it's written all over in Metternature like a machine, my God. But you know, there's one, in fact, that's why we go to this particular part of the quarry, they call, it's been named the unfinished obelisk of Hatshepsut. Why? Because after they had finished carving the length out, and they now weren't getting down in there, they're going to get up under it, carve out there, a crack appeared. So they like, damn. Okay, let's start again. <laughs> See, think about the patience. <laughs> In fact, that's why we go there. We go there not to just look at the enormity, not just to marvel at the engineering, but to contemplate ways of knowing the patience it takes. This took you months and months. Now it's been a year and then the crack and you realize this stone had a crack in it from jump. We didn't do that. This thing had a crack. Okay. Now, you can sit there staring at it, <laughs> or you can take a breath, do a ritual, and go 30 feet over there and keep digging in that red granite, because <laughs> you've got to produce. And so we can't, narrative, and, and again, this thing, you know, narrative isn't something that just came to your mind last year. This is a slow build. And as we build and as we as you recruit a team and get a team together, we met each other, we move forward. You know, it is it alters because we call this in class and you know, in class with cars. Great. And it is There's a classroom dimension. We're having a conversation on narrative. We build curriculum. So if you want to have an introduction to African African States class with curriculum, sequence, lessons, things you can complete to judge how far you come in terms of getting this content. You can do that. You can do that now, of course, and, and, and are doing it now. But this is the point. You It can't be done in one session or two or 50. It can't be done vicariously. In other words, like go to church, hear a sermon, leave. No, nah, that's not how it works. That That's a false perception. Maybe it can't be done. Now, here's where it gets real deep. <laughs> and, and, and I'm open to that. I'm open to that, too. No, no, no. no. I, don't mean, I don't mean it can't be done in terms of black people. Maybe it can't be done, period, because I you know, when we talk about, you know, okay, I did all those. Now what? There's no evidence. Why? Because the behavior didn't change. The connections didn't change. And that's not something that is exclusive to black people. Here we are in the so-called 21st century. We live, many of us, in the United States of America. And you look at the quality of education. And what you see is that much of what we call education is really vocational training. In other words, it's a subset of education based on producing a workforce with certain skills. And I know that having working, we both know this as uh, teachers, as professors in higher education, much of higher education. This has been the struggle at the heart of higher education in the Western concept since higher education emerged in the 10th and 11th and 12th centuries in what we now call Europe. You know, the, the modern Western university comes out of the church. It's ecclesiastical in form. 
right down to the rituals, which is why we still wearing hot ass robes in May and June to go to graduation. That comes out of the monastic tradition. What was the purpose of monastic education? The purpose was to, to train better priests for the enterprise. I'll stop just short. No, I'm going to say it. The criminal enterprise known as European Christianity. Now, I don't mean uh, -uh. when I say European Christianity, let me be very clear. There's only one denomination that emerges out of Western Eurasia in the wake of converting Christianity from a social movement into an organized and therefore manageable enterprise. That one denomination is called Catholicism. Everything that comes after Catholicism owes it to Catholicism. You understand? So when I say European Christianity, I mean Catholicism. And higher education is very Catholic in the sense of the rigor, the training, the hierarchy. All those things come out. I mean, Will, you know, William Clark's book uh, on education, higher education, and the beginnings of the modern research university, James Brundage's book on the legal profession, the medieval origins of the legal profession, where you see the law comes out of the ecclesiastical courts of the church, you know, particularly in the 12th, 13th centuries in Europe. Now, I'm saying all that to say this as it relates to, you know, what we're talking about in this rituals of remembrance and how we deal with things. Rituals are what hold societies together in terms of collective action. So there's a function for it in terms of ways of knowing. Collective enterprise. How do we move collectively to remember the things that we come out of so that we see ourselves as part of those things? In other words, society isn't just the human beings talking. Society is everybody who came before us and everybody who's going to come after us. We're all part of that ecosystem. So we, you know, the Europeans weren't the first ones to have statuary. In fact, the Lincoln Memorial sitting in that temple, when you go to Thebes, so-called Thebes and Luxor, and you see the you will see the reflecting pool. You will see the Tekken, which are Hatshepsut. You see those things, and then you will see with the columns the original place where even the idea of the Greeks had of architecture come from. So when you're looking at the Lincoln Memorial, the reflecting pool, and the Washington Monument, the model for it is in the Nile Valley. Okay, but but so they're not the first. However, the question becomes, what is the purpose for that? So when it comes to European Christianity, you know, when it comes to the Roman Empire and, you know, we'll talk about this. I mean, these again, these are among the million, million topics we have that we can develop in narrative and connect to people who've been doing this work all along. That's another thing. It's all collective. Well, let, me just, let me just pause you, too, because um, thank you for Dr. Beatty. We're, oh, yes. We've been we've been moving. But mm -hmm. I'm, I, I feel like the perfect time to drop that will be in September. Yes. Which would be in alignment with an Egyptian calendar, uh, start of a new year, and 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 he's going to have homework and all. So, but again, you're right. Development of this can't just happen because we want it. And in the moment, things have to come together, and we have to do it properly. That's but I apologize for stuff. No, no, please don't apologize. Actually, that's good because you know otherwise we could have. All this is a long footnote because we haven't left Brianna Taylor. No, we, we haven't left the power of memorial. We haven't left the power of ritual or George Floyd or any of the rituals that have taken place over this last year. So let me bring that in in a very, very deliberate sense and use something that you raised um, on the way to this conversation about movement, movement and memory, which is another category. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but let me close. Let me just put put a put a end on that sentence and Wait, you do, um somebody wanted to know and i think we should what was the purpose of the egyptian monuments well again it's memory it's social movement i mean there are a number of uh, purposes i mean when it comes to the um the the pyramids the so-called pyramids um those are civic projects among other things so it isn't just about an individual with this inflated sense of self the pertwa or the great house what we call the pharaoh pharaoh does not mean king 
Per means house. Wa means great. The great house. And so in a sense, the person responsible for uh, making the final decisions on the administration of the society, the state, as we might call it, the state. We get too too deep into the notion of administrative state. I'd pull a book for y'all, but that book's like two hundred dollars, and you know, by come to narrative for all that, right? Doctor Bay, we got Doctor Bay, the best. So we need to, to get in there. But my point is that part of the reason that you have the labor force to build pyramids is because these are farmers who are working in their most intense efforts on pyramid building during the period when they can't farm. In other words, the harvest is in, the Nile hasn't flooded yet. You got that several month window there and you put people to work. They, you feed them, you know, they have the rituals, spiritual rituals, their ways of knowing that they do. You go to a little place called Set, Set Ma'at, the place of Ma'at. Uh, Daryl Medina is the Arabic word for it. They call it the workers village. If you if you are all familiar with Egyptian history, been there many times and you see how they live, this kind of thing. But anyway, and that's not to uh, idealize. To idealize, I won't say romanticize, because, again, that, too, has an etymology, right? To idealize the society. You got people who are coerced, although slaves didn't build the pyramids and it certainly wasn't the children of Israel. So, I mean, we set that aside because we're not going to read the Bible as a history book. It is a legitimate text for a way of knowing. OK, and so there's no need to argue about that. But as a history book, it's just not going to hold up. Slaves didn't build pyramids. But at any rate, one of the purposes, though, is to to make a coherent society over time. Permanent structures aren't just for shelter. Permanent structures also are for ritual. So you had rituals, you know, at uh, the place that is known as Sakara, which is a large burial ground temple complex, the Sakara Plain Plateau. Most of it's undisturbed because you, you're talking about miles and miles and miles of undisturbed sand. You know, now when they start digging up Arlington National Cemetery, some of us believe they can continue to dig up in Sakura. Oh, we found a mummy. Yeah, well, let's go dig up George Washington. See how his teeth are doing. Yeah, sacrilege. Yeah, okay. Well, you're digging up our ancestors. But anyway, that haven't been said. Uh, there is a there's a complex there that is um, built under uh, a Perwa named Josher. Uh, the guy who was responsible for it higher up in the in Kemetic administration, the Egyptian administration, is a man named Imhotep. Um, shout out to all the people who now use Hotep as a pejorative term. I'm not talking to y'all right now. Again, you need to just keep working, keep studying, keep learning. You'll find just how much of a self, uh, an embarrassingly self, self-immolating, I-M-M-O-L-A-T-I-N-G, immolating, in other words, self-attacking thing that is, uh, Imhotep, um, was the architect in many ways of that complex. So you have what is called the so-called step pyramid, where you basically have a series of mastabas, which are large stone uh, formations that you then construct and you build them one on top of each other till you get this pyramid. And then but you to enter the Sakura uh, complex of constructed by Imhotep, designed by Imhotep, you go through this stone building and it's got the columns. Some people call them Greek columns and not Greek columns. There are no Greeks at this time. We're talking now around what, 2700, 2800. Uh, on the other side of the zero. So we're talking about close to 5,000 years ago. Um, and so, but this was a place and there's a large courtyard where they would have something called the Heb Sed Festival. So um, after a term of years, the Purwa, the Pharaoh would demonstrate their vitality. In other words, their, their continued capacity to sit atop this huge 
Egyptian uh, administrative structure by engaging and having to run around this huge complex a number of times. Now, when they got too old to be able to do that, it was a symbolic gesture. But the whole point was you bring the whole nation there. And by nation, I do mean nation in that way, because everybody on the Nile Valley isn't the same people. But by creating this formation called the nation, you bring them all into the place. And you have you see in high in the stone walls that Imhotep had designed little square marks where people would put their flags, their banners in rep representing where along the Nile Valley they were from. And so you would have these gatherings. So one of the reasons you build structures is for these uh, these periodic gatherings to reinforce the notion of this being a collective. So you could gather for an inauguration of a president. You could gather for the 4th of July. You could gather for Memorial Day. But if you don't have a permanent structure there, the gathering becomes the people. And you could do that, too. Or you can and you can gather where significant events occur. So if you go down to, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but I'm just going to mention this one more example from Egypt and continue because about this purpose in terms of Egypt. If you go to a place, uh, one of my favorite places, in fact, it might be my favorite place of all, um, Abidus. You go to Abidus, this was uh, a complex that was built, begun under Seti I and continued and completed under his son, Ramses II. And it is a temple complex. And the one that is built directly for Seti the first is just one of the most beautiful pieces of human of architecture I've ever seen. And I think I will ever see. I've been a lot of places, hope to go a lot more places. But man, that place at Abidus, because you get a different chamber for each of the major concepts of articulations of the divine in the comedic way of knowing at that time. Isis or Aset, Asar, Osiris, Heru. Horus, Hetheru, Hathor. I mean, you see, and each one exquisitely carved out of that white limestone, the color still popping off the walls. And you just see these people. But of course, Ramses got to be all up in the flavor. So he and the Kool-Aid and all of them, right? I mean, so you see him with, you know, adjusting the crown, right? You see him with Amun, the, the unseen one. It's like, man, what? I mean, but the point is that that's a ritual place. And then you go around and you see him as a boy with his father sitting first and they're looking at the names of all the Periwa. Here's the thing about history, though. History is always written in the present and it always remixes the past because we can't remember everything. And some, a lot of times it's very much political. So you see certain names not even on this list, even though we know they were Periwa's, that it preceded them. Two names not on the list is Agnaten. They, they ain't down with Agnaten, so you know that's a whole nother story. They let that debate release there. They don't even put his name on there. Hatshepsut. Like, oh, really? Y'all gonna, gonna do the sister like that? The Perua? Her name not on there? But anyway, you keep going through there, you go down, and you come around the back, and they say, This is the burial place, what they call the Osiris. This is the burial place of Osar, the first person to unite. He and his brother Satek, talk about that whole story. I mean, yeah, you see the, the uniting of Kemet. This is the burial place of Asar. If that's the burial place of Asar, the first name you articulate in terms of that human uh, divine linkage, if that's the burial place of Asar, that's the most holy place you can find. But, but part of monuments is about holy places where things happen. Now let's fast forward over the thousands of years and the whole globe to where we are today. Go to Westminster Abbey. Abbey. That's where the queen's husband got buried. Why? Because you put your people who are avatars for your society in a place you can go visit them. You reinforce Notre Dame. 
Uh, you go to a place, George Washington's grave in Mount Vernon. You go to a place, Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King's grave in Atlanta, where they moved them from the cemetery where they were to, well, where he was. And they moved once they get the King Center built, because he was buried out there with his mom and them, mom and daddy. You know, So they move. And then when she makes transition, you put her there with him at the King Center with the water around them. And Benjamin and Eliza, Benjamin Mays and Sadie Mays on the campus of Morehouse College. There are HBCUs that do that. You know, Joseph Charles Price at Livingstone. Uh, you can name, but they're not just HBCUs to do that. Russell Conwell, the founder of Temple University, buried on campus with his wife. I mean, so sometimes you put people at a place and then there's a big stone head of him at Temple, Russell Conwell's face, you know, Temple University, the university that was built for the working class, the people who had to work in the daytime so they can only study at night, which is why their mascot is the owl the bird, the night bird, the bird of Minerva, the goddess of wisdom. Yeah, that's cute for the Greeks, but keep taking that owl back to the ancient Nile Valley if you want to start talking about Seba, the wise, a whole nother conversation for another day. And that ain't the only grave with a big rock on it in, in, in the universities. Go down to Tuskegee, where Monroe Nathan work and his wife, where George Washington Carver are buried, where Eunice Rivers, who was the nurse during the period trying to run interference between these white doctors and these black men that got syphilis in the so-called Tuskegee experiment. They're all buried in a little graveyard, a little cemetery in Tuskegee. And right beyond that little graveyard, under a huge boulder in front of the chapel, is a boulder with one word on it, Washington, <laughs> Booker T. Washington. I mean, so one of the reasons you build memorials is to honor your dead. These are for sedentary cultures. And it's not unusual. It goes all the way back to the Egyptians. That's why they can dig in Sakara, because they know the Egyptians buried their dead. And they would come back for the rituals, come back for the rituals. So that too is not unusual. So if you're building a community that links you from your ancestors to you to the future, one of the reasons you build structures is to do that. Now, statuary, too, is not unusual. You see, the statuary in Kemet, or Egypt, as people would say now, the statuary in Egypt is is just sublime. It is remarkable. Mentu Hotep, black as <laughs> black as tar, sitting now in the Cairo Museum, soon to be over in the Grand Egyptian Museum. You know, with these big feet. I'm like, dude, man, how you gonna say it? now? Now, mind you, the Egyptians didn't paint their statuary to reflect the skin color of the people. That wasn't their 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 artistic style. So you can't really, you know. However. When you see it paint, when you see a statue painted that way with that twisted hair or those locks or that or that curly hair, you understand, oh yeah, now you really can't, <laughs> especially when they carve out of that onyx. You see somebody like a Minamite II or in that black onyx, you'd be like, man, this is, these are black people. I mean, because you just see. But anyway, that hasn't been said. So statues go all the way back. The statues in West Africa, Central Africa, places like that don't look like the Egyptian statues in the same way, although some of them. You look at those Benin bronzes, for example, um, on what is now Nigeria, and you say, oh, yeah, this lost wax casting and the way this looks like somebody could just start talking right now. You do see they have the, the, the technology to do it, but it's a matter of artistic style. But if it isn't in bronze, if it isn't in iron, if it isn't in metal, if it isn't even in stone, like the no culture of West Africa, for example, again, Nigeria, if it isn't in uh, gold, like the Akan gold weights, if it's in wood, then it probably deteriorated. So what Europe does is it goes looking for itself all over the world and then says if they don't, it doesn't find a version of itself in another culture. They say these people didn't have it. Well, here they don't have it. It was in wood, fool. <laughs> and it rains down here. <laughs> Do you understand? And they use it in rituals, which is the last thing I'll mention. So it's not just about ancestors. It's not just about social convening. It's about evoking those ancestors. So a lot of the statuary you see in Africa 
you see them use it for a lot. So you, you will go say you look at the uh, in, in, in the Congo in Kisi, uh, in Central Africa, for example, and you'll see it, and you'll see what what the art historians would call discoloration. It's not discoloration; they poured libations on it for forty years. You understand? You poured libations for that. You know, in other words, this was never supposed to be in a museum. You pull it out every so often, once every five years, once every six months, once every two years, when there is a dispute that you need to settle. Once you've settled it, you take a piece of iron and you nail it into that body, which is why you see some of the Zinkisi with all these iron pieces nailed into it. Why? Because each one of those iron pieces is represents a dispute that was settled by the tribunal, by the co collective, the Mbangi, the however, the however they convened. And that right there symbolizes the treaty, the peace, the settlement. Now, that means when you look at one of them statues in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, like I did when they had the Congo, big Congo exhibit, and I resist the urge to go over there and fish out the exhibition catalog that came with it. As a person who's trained in, in American jurisprudence, the law, I'm looking at that saying, this is like looking at the Supreme Court decisions, except there's nobody around now to explain what each one of those nails mean. So stop saying these people didn't have a legal system and they didn't have a legal system in the same way. No, you understand enough to understand you looking at one of the examples of it, but you can't read it anymore because you can't read what each of those nails represents. But that's a statute in the in the Western sense. Right. So anyway, that hasn't been said. So when you build a memorial to a Breonna Taylor or a George Floyd or you put a mural up. Or, you, you know, you, you do that, you are attempting to create a place where you can convene to remember, which gives you renewed purpose. You're also attempting to evoke the ancestor, never to forget the ancestor, because the ancestors fight for us, fight with us sometimes, fight against us other times, whole field of ways of knowing. Again, come to narrative. And we connect to all these other places. People have been doing this work all along. And you perform these rituals, these rituals of renewal. So next May, there's no George Floyd Square. Were they going to convene? Maybe they shouldn't convene. Okay, but you didn't take down Fort Schnelling near the airport in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where you had Dred and Harriet Scott enslaved, where you took Little Crow after y'all was out there trying to kill all the Lakota Sioux in that region, and you create and you crafted a death warrant, and, Link, and Lincoln took some names off, but still signed a death warrant for 38, read the book 38 Nooses, you killed Little Crow out there, in other words, and you didn't dismantle the fort. In fact, you turned it over to the Park Service. Now y'all see the National Park Service guards the monuments of America. Not just the natural forces, not just uh, Yellowstone National Park, but also the houses where people were born, the places people lived. The historical registry has all these places. right? And so what you do is you use these physical places to knit together the fabric of what you want the society to remember and what you want the people living now to be part of as this societal project. That's why they built pyramids. That's why they built temples and had tombs like that. And that's to this day why human beings do those kind of things. There are different ways. That's the last thing I'll say about in this direct context. There are different ways to do that. For example, you go to China, uh, which has, you know, arguably the longest unbroken national memory there is. That's why I love Howard French's books. You know, not I mean, all of them, China, you know, Africa, China, Second Continent, he's talking about, but 
you know, he wrote a book called Everything Under the Sun, Howard French, the brother who writes for the New York Times, among other places, got a new book coming out in the fall. It's very interesting on the question of Africa, the central central of world history, adding to that long set of books and conversations about that. But I'm just mentioning it because it came to mind. But he wrote this book, you know, Everything Under the Sun. China sees itself as the center of all human civilization. And well, it should. Who the hell going to tell them they not? A bunch of five-year-olds whose uh, whose daddy came from England and they made up a country over here after trying to dispossess every human being living now. You know, they laugh, they chuckle. But Chinese architecture, often sacred sites, aren't the original sites. The Chinese have been known to and know and know and will dismantle a sacred site and then build it again out of new materials exactly the way it was. So it isn't even about and for some people the physical site itself in terms of the materials used to build it the first time part of, you know we just gonna we'll dismantle it and build it again exactly how it is we'll perpetually keep it going even that ritual is a form of remembering national identity come all the way across and go to the western sudan timbuktu you know the work of john hunwick and so many others over the years i don't even get into that but when you go to the mosque uh, timbuktu or the mosque at Jenei, the grand mosque the big mosque I mean, among the muslims the africans who you know who are muslims you will see you know, uh, in fact, my man, uh, uh, Alan Flagg, his son, when he was a teenager, when we, uh, he took, you know, they all, they all out in L.A., right? Flagg and his son went over there one time. I love his brother, both of them, in fact, and you know, his whole family, you know, loved them all. But, um, you know, Flagg's son climbed the walls and helped these teenagers because what are they doing at the mosque? The mosque is made of earth. You might call it mud. You mix the earth with water and other stuff, you know, and you use that clay to maintain the mosque. But what does that tell you? So one of the jobs of the people who are young enough and fit enough to do is to climb the mosque walls and perpetually add, apply clay to renew clay. Well, if you do that over a couple of hundred years, that mosque been there since the 16th century. <laughs> you understand? So 15th century. But if you do that, then that clay that you is not the original clay. It isn't the clay of the, of the 17th century with Ahmed Baba, one of the great scholars of the Western Sudan, who was taken into exile by the Amovarids and is out there in Morocco. And he says, you know, oh, please, if you pass by Timbuktu, whisper the name of Ahmed Baba, an exile, 1591. Oh, man, y'all better go back and read. Anyway, black people, <laughs> my point is that it ain't the same mosque of the great Ahmed Baba, but, 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 but it is the same place. So, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Maude Aubrey was killed in a suburb. The question becomes, who got the body? Where are they buried? And the question also becomes, where did the thing that shaped our sensibility about how we became aware of them take place? So these death sites become almost, I hate to say the word shrines, but in some ways, because that also captures part of the trauma. But as we were thinking, as you were thinking about, uh, as you mentioned it, uh, Professor Hunter, you talked about, um, that moment we talked about last week, the day before Memorial Day in this country. And it escaped me at the moment because, you know, we talking about so many things and then just kind of touching on subjects. But the same brother Floyd Cooper, who did the uh, Tulsa children's book, um, which I think I put on no, here it is. Good. Let me see if I can pull it right quick. Um, and we talked about unspeakable last week. Yes. Oh, Carol, what, right. Floyd Cooper. Floyd Cooper also did the illustration for a book by another sister, Leah Henderson, called A Day for Remembering. Mm. Great children's book inspired by true events of the first Memorial Day. That is so beautiful. Oh my God, this man 
has skills. And I know knowing you, you're going to talk to him at some point. <laughs> there he is. I mean, Floyd, man, Floyd Cooper. But here, I'll just look at one page here. Here's the little boy. That's him with his mom, right? But where is the father? Nine days in a row. Papa up early and gone again. I still can't go with him, though. He said, Eli, school's where you need to be reading and counting. But I am counting right here, day nine. <laughs> Not following after Papa is harder than holding a hot potato in my hand. He said, important work has to be done. Man's work. I rose on my toes then, pushing out my chin, stretching as tall as my 10-year-old self could. But it made no difference. Can't take you with me right now, boy. But eventually, he know where he's going because everybody know where he's going. Right? He's in school, learning his alphabets. Look at these. Oh, man, Floyd Cooper's the man. At night, he come home, he tired. He climb up in his lap, go to sleep with him. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm, movement and memory. And then, one day, wake up, Eli. Today, you're coming with me. This is a rite of passage for children. Remember the first time your dad let you come with him someplace? <laughs> your mom said, come on, go. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead. I mean, you, as I'm watching that, you know, this is a traumatic experience, but he made it into something beautiful. Yes, he it did. Had a lesson and yeah, I remember my daddy got me up to go to his store. First, come time, on now. You know, the first time I got to go to the store, I got to play in a pinball machine. He had a pinball machine in the store in the, in the back. Uh, you know, got to put the groceries up. Taught me how to do that. Turn them just face front. Make sure everything was clean and dusted. Everything had to be face front. The label had to be face front in the refrigerator. Went to the wholesale house with him. Yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday. What was the first time your daddy took you somewhere? Oh, my God. Well, before, before, because I had to go back and search my memory, but I'll say this. Children don't know. Talk about batons being passed. They don't know that those are the early moments when they're getting the feel for the baton. Mm -hmm. I'm playing on the pinball machine. I'm also going to the distributor. <laughs> See, I didn't know that this was... I'm being prepared for work. I think, oh, this is great. Okay, so let me pay attention. Daddy, wait, hold on. Is that because you ordered 10, right? Okay, I counted. You told me to count, right? No, you don't even realize he's thinking 40 years in the future. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But but I mean, so for my my father, it was an interesting thing. You know, my father, like Eli's daddy, he got up early, went to work at the VA. I remember going to the VA hospital. My father was worked in dietary services. He was a supervisor over there, worked many years. My father had a white shirt, white pants. He had to wear white in dietary services. And so I remember going as a little boy, I couldn't remember, I can't remember. But I remember going into a room with my father, you know, black men, I don't care where black men are, if it's more than two of them, they're going to figure out a way to make a circle. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I walk in his room and my daddy's standing there with his hands on his heels. My father wasn't a tall man, like five, six, five. He said, and here's Brother Strange. Here's, and all these cats are stand, they stand in a circle. This your son? And I remember the feeling I remember. I don't remember anything that was spoken that day, but this is what I remember. I remember the respect those black men showed my father. See, this is this is the important, and I'm I'm quite sure, Professor Hunter, I'm quite sure, Karen, that that's a feeling you remember too from seeing people come in the store. In other words, you that's when you begin to realize it's not just my family. <laughs> you know, we're members of a community and they respect my father. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I respect my father, but 
but it's different when you see age make these are ritual and so the VA hospital these are veterans these are black men who served most of them in World War II in Korea at the time but the beautiful thing about it is that at that moment they are not employees of the veterans they are not part of the social structure they're part of the governance structure and what I'm also being trained to do is observe how a man carries himself <laughs> this is what a man does or more importantly well not more importantly equally importantly man is a subset of adult this is how an adult conducts themselves right because there were also women who worked there billy wright you know my old classmate angela wright who's a lawyer now in atlanta her mama worked at the so miss wright come in is you know you can see okay this is how you how a woman enters and exits this conversation as a peer i won't say equal because even that language what are we talking about? You know what I'm saying? You don't treat a man the same way. This is why Kwame Brown saying, you know, Jamel, just stay out of it. Nothing personal. But if it was women talking, you wouldn't see me go over there. Everybody black understands. Now, with all due respect to Max Kellerman or anybody got some comments on it. No, you're in the social structure. You don't understand that we're not saying everybody should be treated the exact same way in the government. We understand culture means there's a correct entry and exit. But anyway, anyway, no, 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 no. no. So, so, so so that question of respect, that question of respect is important. So Eli gets to go, right? Where is he going? <laughs> we strut through the entrance at the Planners Race Course, where white folks used to watch mighty horses run before the war. But it isn't a race course no more. For a while, the Confederates made it a jail. Mama and ladies from church used to sneak food to the Union soldiers head held prisoner there. He's standing outside the place that used to be forbidden. Guess what? You used to see that place. That was a monument to white supremacy. They would watch black men riding horses for them. Slavery. Now, I'm going to come back over this in a second, but I'm not going to go too much further. You know what he tells them to do? The men go inside. They digging. They hammering. You know what they tell them youngsters to do? We didn't bent this. We didn't built this fence. The men. This is your job. Paint it. Because guess what they turn that race course into? <laughs> you already know. That's where they reburied. <laughs> Those Africans, right? That is so beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, and that's just a few of the pages. Y'all have to, again, you want children, understand there's a way to engage with what the social structure calls trauma that strips that of trauma being the center of the existence. So when we see Breonna Taylor now, Oh my God, everything. When we see her, you know, at Sankofa, you know, going to Sankofa and they've got this beautiful uh, painting, Queen Brianna. In other words, Brianna Taylor has already been elevated and will continue to be elevated by our community with the murals and the songs and the, and the checks and the hip hop remixes. And all. I mean, in other words, we're not going to let you turn her into a victim. She was victimized in a moment, but we are stripping all that bare. And guess what? You know, when you see, what's the sister's name? Amy Sherald. I mean, I remember going back now into the summer when a lot of these covers began to go. It was Vanity Fair. No, Perry James Marshall did one of them. And I'd be hard pressed to find the stack of magazines now with all the different pieces. But take her out of that EMT uniform because that's who she is to you. And in that moment, you know what? Say she's in dresses. She's in, you know, pictures with her boyfriend, the family or moms. In other words, Breonna Taylor is human. And so what physical places do is give us a place to, to remix that. And I just want to mention one other thing in terms of Memorial Day and regard this. And I mentioned this last week. 
my friend uh, Wilbert Jenkins, who did a book back in the late 90s called Seizing the New Day, African-Americans in post-Civil War Charleston. I'm mentioning this because even since we've been together uh, since last week, since last since we were together last, you know, all this this notion of um, Memorial Day and again, rituals, cemetery rituals like the ritual in Hudson, Ohio, where an older, white, retired army officer in simply talking about the African-American origins of what we now know in the United States as Memorial Day, had the microphone cut off uh, by white nationalists who said this isn't appropriate for the ritual. I respect them. I embrace them because I don't share anything with them except the requirement that I follow the rules of the federal policy that I find myself in with them. But I share nothing else with them. And I'm very clear about that. So when we say we're better than this, I'm not thinking, but no, we're not better than this. These white people cut the microphone off on a white man, older white man who was telling this history. And the irony is, and he mentions this in his speech, the irony, uh, when Roland Martin, he, among many others, everybody played it, right? When Roland played, he said, you know, the irony is, of course, more people know about it now because they cut off the mic than they would have. They just let the man talk. And one of the things he says in his speech is he mentions John Brown. He says, and I'll come back to that. That's very important. Yeah. You know why? Because John Brown was born in Connecticut, but from age five to about 17, he was on his father on Brown's farm in, where was Oh. Hudson, Ohio, the very place, <laughs> the very place where they cut the microphone off in the cemetery when this man is talking about the African-American origins of Memorial Day, which they call Decoration Day. And when they went in after those uh, after they had redone everything and they had gone in, the um, the school children were sending the, 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 the page I show you. Look at the look at the words. In line stretching longer than a mile, we crossed onto the old race course, singing with our fullest hearts. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul goes marching on. Though we sing about John Brown, we're really singing for all the buried Union soldiers. They walked, they marched those 3,000 black children into that cemetery on the first decoration day, now we call Memorial Day, and they were singing, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. The reason I bring that up, of course, point of entry was Hudson, Ohio, where John Brown lived most of his childhood, is where they cut off the microphone on the white man talking about this very ceremony. The other reason I bring it up is because, you know, I don't sing the so-called Star Spangled Banner, because Francis Scott Key, who was pro-slavery, Read a book called Snowstorm in August. If you want to Snowstorm in August, if you want to know about the Washington area lawyer Francis Scott Key, uh, we won't even get into the third verse of the so-called national anthem. But I ask my students all the time, give me the first five words of the national anthem, and until they move from "Oh say can you see," uh, "Oh say can you see," <laughs> that's the first four words <laughs> uh, to lift every voice and sing. Those are the first four words for national anthem for me. Again, governance structure, who with each other. But John Brown's body, obviously written long before James Weldon and James Rosemont Johnson wrote Lifted Voice and Sing in Jacksonville, Florida, to celebrate, among other things, the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, another ritual, right? That song, and there's a whole book that's been written about it. I, the name escapes me. I won't even go look for it now, obviously, um, about that song. But John Brown, John Brown's body 
became a marching anthem in the Union Army before the end of the Civil War. And if you've ever heard, and black people, man, Nathaniel Debt, oh my God, I think about the great William Dawson at Tuskegee. I think about the great arrangers who have made over the years. I'm sure you, we've all heard, I'm sure you've heard, Prof, many stirring editions of what they call the battle hymn. Julia Ward Howe eventually wrote all the lyrics, the battle hymn of the Republic. And when you know, and then, of course, Martin Luther King would seize upon that when he would give his public speeches, which come out of the sermonic thing. You know, you know, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Black people love that. See this, the, the Star Spangled, I'm sorry, Star Spangled Banner, it's about war. And, and the Battle Hymn of the Republic is like a, a revenge anthem. <laughs> he has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Yeah, we get through his marching. All the arrangements that I love of the, of the so-called Battle Hymn of the Republic have got that part where, you know, I see William Dawson will sneak that in there and Nathaniel Depp where they'll do that staccato. Truth is marching. Truth is marching. Truth is marching. Truth is marching. Truth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we come hit the, and the reason I mentioned Wilbur Jenkins is because this ceremony we just saw Henderson and Cooper give us a children's book for, Wilbur devotes part of uh, chapter two of his book, uh, um, his book, African Americans, the post-Civil War Charleston, season New Day. They He devotes that, chapter two is called, Thank God We Are a Free People. And when you get into it, he talks about the fact that white people started fleeing Charleston in early 1865, the war is over. They realize they're getting ready to lose. And what happens? Who comes in first to liberate Charleston? The 21st United States Colored Troops followed closely by a detachment from the 54th Massachusetts. Now, every people watch Glory and think, okay, now we know what happened. You don't know nothing. Stop watching movies with Ferris Bueller and Denzel and uh, Morgan Freeman and think you know something about it. Denzel's a hell of an actor, that single tear coming down his ear, eyes, he's whipped. Okay, that's nice. Now, go to what really happened because you'll mess up. <laughs> Otherwise, movement and memory. And so here come the 21st, right? Here come the, uh, the 54th. And then here come the 3rd and 4th South Carolina regiments. Black soldiers came in. Some of those black soldiers in the third and fourth South Carolina have been formerly enslaved themselves. They came in to liberate Charleston. This is February 1865. White folk running. Now, you know, I had to do a little bit more research. In fact, I had to pull Conjuring Freedom, which is the book, one of the books that's been written most recently on the first South Carolina. I love the first South Carolina. That's the group they call the Gospel Army. Them Negroes used to do the ring shout at night after they finished uh and there they'd be camping down for the night they do the ring shout sing the good old good ones they are depicted on the beautiful monument on the south carolina state grounds by the great sculptor ed dwight who also did the sculpture at tulsa so anyways you know ed, we should probably do on one on ed dwight in fact ed dwight still walks the earth have you ever talked to him i'm i have not, not okay no. he's one he's one in here right Right, yeah, right is a master. Oh my god, his sculptures. I mean, they're everywhere, right? So, but anyway, um, so the black soldiers come in. Now you've got black people in Charleston who were free. The the, the quote unquote elite, many of them children of enslavers, but you know, they're black, they see what's going on, but they're not as deeply connected as some of the other free blacks. And then all the formerly enslaved Africans who pour into Charleston and begin rituals, 
Oh my God. On the plantations, as my friend Catherine Frankie writes in her book, uh, Repair and many other places, you see this, they tearing up everything. They taking the furniture out the house, putting it in their cabin. You know, they ripping up the floorboards. They saying hey, white people are fleeing, like, come with us. They're like, <laughs> you want to die? You can keep talking to me or not. Just get on the boat. Best we can do for you is not kill you. And so, but then they start coming into Charleston and they start having rallies. They start, uh, and then Wilbert talks about them taking charge in a new situation in within two weeks of when the armies come in. You know what the black women in Charleston do? They organize a ceremony for the three black regiments. Now they done told you in the children's book, they were sneaking food into the Confederate prison camp that these children helped decorate after they turned it into a sacred place. They were sneaking food to the black soldiers. Now they free. They done fixed up food. They got flags. They're going to pay tribute to these black soldiers. And then who shows up in Charleston? Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney, the highest ranking black officer in the United States military. Black as tall. Martin Delaney. Friends with Frederick Douglass, who Douglass famously said, every morning I wake up and thank God he made me a man, but every morning Delaney wakes up and thanks God he made him a black man. <laughs> Martin Delaney, who John Brown tried to convince to come to Harpers Ferry, and he met in Canada and was like, yeah, well, you know, this is interesting. It's going to be a whole black country, huh? That's cool. Yeah, Kansas, you are, oh, no problem. Listen, man, I'm down, but I'm not going to be in the country. But Martin Delaney, 1859, is in Africa. He didn't sail to Africa with Robert Campbell, the Jamaican, trying to work out a deal with the people in what is now Nigeria. Let's just come back, man. Let them niggas, and there's a war being ready to jump off? Okay, I'll be back. Becomes the first major. Delaney shows up in Charleston. This is a this is a hero. Colin Powell, no disrespect. Imagine Colin Powell on the unequivocally right side of history and the only one showing up. You can smell the smoke from the war and all these people used to be enslaved. And here come Martin Delaney, the hero. Shit, Delaney came. He was at Zion Presbyterian Church. There were 3,000 black people there. That's impressive in Charleston. 3,000 black people. But here's the other thing. Zion was built to seat 2,000 to begin with. Wait, they had a 2,000 church, black church in, in Charleston, South Carolina, when they built it in a month? No, it had been built there before the Civil War because, because you had free blacks who were there in Charleston. And some of them free blacks was them same Sadiddy Negroes whose descendants are now trying to convince us, look at all this stuff you need to calm down. Yeah, some of y'all was down there too. They didn't really mess with these other people, but guess what? It didn't matter. Then they started having emancipation parades. In fact, they organized one with 4,000 marchers and they all come marching down the street. You got the regiments coming. You got, and then, oh, I love this. I love this. In fact, I'm just going to read from Wilbert's book. Wilbert says, behind at the end of the, uh, of the march came a hearse with the body of slavery, followed by mourners all dressed in black. On the hearse were the following inscriptions, slavery is dead. Who owns him? No one. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> I'm just gonna say anyway, I won't go too much further into this, but I do wanna mention this though. They go on April the 14th, 1865. In other words, about two and a half weeks before Decoration Day, which gave birth to Memorial Day. And the reason I'm saying all this, I just gave you a few of the examples is that what we now call Memorial Day had its roots in Decoration Day, and Decorations Day wasn't a one-off. It was part of a series of rituals of remembrance and convening of a people who are literally creating themselves because of ritual. This is why you have monuments, in other words. You don't have monuments for one-off. You're doing this to create a community, a governance set. And those Black elites who didn't participate, 
saw themselves aligned with the masters still, even after slavery. But the free blacks, many of whom were not part of that black elite, they went with the formerly enslaved. They didn't even see a distant difference between them. And the last one I'm gonna mention is April 14th, 1865, the same day Abraham Lincoln is killed. These black people go to Fort Sumter. Those of you from South Carolina, I know where Fort Sumter is. Those of you from Charleston, you know where it is. First time I went to Charleston, you know, I was down there for our brother, Cedric. No, that wasn't the first time I went, but it's the first time I got to do this. I said, Miles, we were down there at, of course, Mother Emanuel, AME Church. But I got a chance to go to Fort, I got to go to Fort Sumter because I'd never been. This is where the thing jumped off. You know, I'm wa I'm walking the places, right? So, and I'm standing on the banks looking at Fort Sumter. That's where it is. Black people went to Fort Sumter to watch them put the American flag back up on the pole because Fort Sumter is where those first shots were fired in the Civil War. Because South Carolina is really the financial intellectual with John C. Calhoun, the late John C. Calhoun, capital of the Confederacy. It ain't Montgomery, it's not Richmond. Charleston is the, they were gonna make Charleston into New York. There's a whole book about that. In other words, when the war jumps off, we win, Charleston's gonna be for the Confederacy what New York was to the United States, that kind of thing. So Charleston, huge, Fort Sumter right there. Black people, it's like, we can't get there. They got the military, but I need a boat, man, I need a boat. So what do they do? They come with, they got planks, they got little dugout, canoes, they gonna swim. Who shows up with a ship and says, get on board, come on, I'm part of the ritual and I'm taking y'all with me? Robert Smalls. Damn, I think about my man, Andrew Billingsley, Dr. Billingsley, still alive now in his mid nineties. Uh, former president of Morgan State College, before that, vice president of academic affairs, Howard University, my very good friend out of Alabama, the great uh, Andrew Billingsley, who wrote a book on Robert Smalls. A lot of stuff been written on Robert Smalls, the captain of the planter. Remember, the planter was that Confederate ship that Smalls and his wife and children and some other families got on and got out of slavery, stole the boat, gave it to the Union Army, and then, and then the Union Navy. And then when the Union Navy was in a battle with the Confederate Navy and saw itself getting ready to lose, the white captain of the planter said, we'll surrender. Robert Smalls working on the ship now, said, hell no, locked him in a closet, commanded the troops to go full steam ahead and had to steal it again, get it back, because if they had captured them, he's going to die. They make him the captain of the planter. And on April 14th, 1865, the captain of the planter the great Robert Smalls. You want to make a movie, make a movie about that, but I don't trust y'all Hollywood Negroes. Anybody with a Netflix contract for that matter, because y'all be done messed it up. Maybe that's a narrative thing, because y'all going to have to find a white point of entry. There's got to be a heroic white child looking at this at the end of it. You're going, nah, mm-mm, nah. Robert Smalls, you know what? Strike what I said. Nobody get no ideas. Anyway, because Robert Smalls, man, who then comes back to D.C. as a congressman. Yes, Ooh. he did. Talk about statues, Professor Hunter. There's a statue of Robert Smalls in there in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Y'all don't pass by that statue of Robert Smalls again without looking at him. But understand this on this day, because this ain't written in the museums. But Wilbur Jenkins wrote about it. April 14th, 1865. Smalls shows up to transport black South Carolinians to Fort Sumter. What's he going to transport them on? You already know. The planter. <laughs> the captain. He takes them, but guess who else is on the ship, Professor Hunter? Oh no, you you not look. We're not ready for this. Nah, who? Who is on the ship? Who's on the ship? Find it. Smalls is on the ship, of course. 
Martin Delaney is on the ship. But who's with Delaney? One of the children. You can't make this up. One of the children of Denmark Vesey. <laughs> Y'all give up fighting about the African-American removes of Memorial Day. Stop trying to convince other people you're human. Come into your governance structure and remember who you are to each other. And part of what rituals do. If there's no Memorial Day ritual, like my man Larry Crow and the people in the Comedic Institute do, where I would normally be last weekend in Ohio at the grave of Martin and Catherine Delaney, with next to it, by the way, I meant to mention, buried next to them is a sister named Hallie Quinn Brown. We're going to do one on her, Professor Hines. Hallie, Hallie Q. Brown, elocutionist, librarian. She was a librarian at Wilberforce. So Dorothy Porter Wesley, Gene Blackwell, his there at the Schomburg, you got to put Hallie Quinn Brown in there as well but she's buried right next to the delaney's so that's one place you could go i would love to see in south carolina in charleston and maybe uh you know our, our brother michael harriet or you know my man bernie uh gallman who did a whole history book called saint kofa university here it is gallman saint kofa university you know i would love to see a ritual where they reenact that i mean because how, look first of all you got smalls who was just a hero straight up you got Delaney, who's a comic book character. If you know the life of Martin, is like, this is not possible. Denmark Vesey, Denmark Vesey set off a whole ass rebellion in Haiti. Where did you find his children? And then you had the sense to bring one to the thing. Guess what? It ain't even about that flag being raised. These are black people literally using a ritual on the same day Abraham Lincoln was killed. Mm. And they didn't know that, of course. The same day, they are using a ritual to build a people, to build an identity, a collective identity. And here we are in 2021, and I went down there, you understand, for the 150th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Because I go to those kind of things, you know, because it's like I go to July 4th. I want to see what the social structure, what they're doing. Not because I want to emulate them, but I never want to forget that part of society is rituals of remembrance. And I stood out there in the street, right off 10th Street in downtown Washington, D.C., and watched them reenact the assassination, come out of Ford's Theater like they were carrying Lincoln's body over to the townhouse, go up the stairs in the townhouse and have a vigil. And it wasn't just black people. It was the Lincoln historians. My dear friend and sister Edna Metford, who's one of the great African-American Lincoln historians, was there. Uh, Colin Powell was there. Was, I mean, they, and I'm saying, hmm, hmm, hmm. Now, except for those blacks who were participating and me, maybe I saw five other black people among thousands. Do <laughs> you understand? But. Is there a similar ritual in South Carolina? Is there a similar natural national ritual? Because without us having the momentum of memory, do you know we make rituals out of? George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. We don't add them to rituals we already had in place because we don't even remember the rituals we did coming out of the Civil War. And because we don't remember, the social structure will then dictate to us how we should then think about these rituals. Yeah, Memorial Day. That's why we should have a black veteran here. Now, you know what? I'd rather have a reenactment with Smalls, Delaney, and Demar Vizi's kids out here. Let's do that. Why? You're being separatist. That's, that's, that's critical race theory. Well, that, that's possibly true. Say some more. Well, I, I think, first of all, I think that we should have a... <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Why am I talking to you? See, this is the problem we have. Anyway, which which brings us finally to you know, the fact that I'm even talking to you means either I'm getting a check for talking to you. Mm. I don't begrudge any of the people in these fake debates on commercial mass media. I understand many of them are my friends because I also know what you say when it's off. You know, I you know I used to do it because it's funny. Now I do it for the money. In the words of Willie Moore, my old band teacher. But the the, the last thing I say is this: if we don't remember. If we don't remember how we've moved through the world, we will have dictated to us how we should remember. And it won't be about us. Let me just give you two very quick examples in conclusion. Today is June the 5th. June the 5th, 1950, there were two decisions that were decided by the United States Supreme Court. We know those decisions more by what they what they stand for than anything else. One was Hyman Sweat versus Painter, uh, which is the case where Hyman Sweat and several other students, including one of my jackets, the great Jacob Hudson Carruthers, sued with the NAACP, sued the University of Texas system to force them to admit black students to the University of Texas for law school. And they on on the fourth uh i'm sorry the fifth of june 1950 sweat versus painter was decided and it was decided that they could go to the school why because they said that segregation in this instance violated the 14th amendment 14th amendment constitution guarantees equal protection of the law and what they first try to do is create a separate black law school in texas for black students that's the law school that's still open today called texas southern school of law but the court was like, nah, because you just got four professors from University of Texas who go over there and teach. You got some books delivered, but it's only 10,000 books. In other words, it's University of Texas got 40,000 books. No, it's not equal. This is 1950. The same day, the same day they decided to sip. Uh, no, not Sipwell. I'm thinking about Sipwell because um, Sister Sipwell had sued the University of Oklahoma before. Um, this was McLaurin. McLaurin versus uh, Oklahoma. George McLaurin was 61 years old. He sued the University of Oklahoma. He had taught at Langston University in Oklahoma for 30 some years, 33 years, I think it was. He sued. And on the same day, they decided uh, Sweat versus Painter, which was you can you have to admit them to law school at the University of Texas, in other words, professional school. They decided that they had to admit uh, Charles, uh, George McLaurin to the University of Oklahoma graduate school. They had already forced them in 1949, I think it was, to uh, to accept a sister named uh, Sipwell, Ada Sipwell. That was a Sipwell versus Oklahoma case. She sued to go to law school. They and she, she tried in 46. She sued, got to the Supreme Court in 49. They decided it was 49. They decided in 49 to let her in. Eventually, the University of Oklahoma puts her on the board of trustees in 1992. In other words, this is the past sins kind of stuff. You know, oh, yeah, but you didn't, yeah, you want Negroes to run football for the University of Oklahoma. But anyway, McLaurin got into the graduate school. That was uh, that was the 5th of June, 1950. Now, what happens between the 5th of June, 1950 and the other case I'm going to mention by way of summary, um, which happened in 1956? 
Well, we know between 1950 and 1956, Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. Brown, too, in terms of the remedy phase, 1955. The whole world's coming apart in the minds of these people. If they had had the words critical race theory, that's what Strom Thurmond and them would have been saying in the 50s. There's going to be no deal you can make with white nationalism, Joe Biden. You can cut that compromise uh, infrastructure plan down to $2. They're going to say, good, and then all vote against it. You, 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 you of all people should know. And then what's going to happen? You're going to stand up and say, we're better than this. And it's on us, though. We're going to keep listening to you. <laughs> some of us. But at any rate, some of us know better. We not a, you know, we know you're a tool. We got to use you. But at any rate, between 50 and 56, you see Brown after those two decisions. And that third decision I want to mention, it gives me, gives me great pleasure to mention this one because it ties to things we've talked about in the past year. I had to go back to the uh, to the good old good one. My man, still alive, the great Fred Gray. We talked about Fred Gray a little bit, but we didn't really get into him a lot. Fred Gray, bus ride to justice, changing the system by the system. This is Martin Luther King's lawyer in his early 20s. Still alive. That's the case Browder versus Gale. Supreme Court. Now, it wasn't the Supreme Court. Actually, it wasn't Supreme Court. It was the Middle Division of Atlanta. Middle, I'm sorry. It was the Middle District Federal Court of Alabama. It was appealed to the Supreme Court, which denied the appeal in November of 56. But the reason I'm bringing it up as it relates to rituals of remembrance and how if we don't tell the story, it'll be told. This is Fred Gray's autobiography, his memoir, by the way, if you want to read it. He talks about this. This is Aurelia Browder, um, Susie McDonald, assisted uh, uh, Jeannie Reese, and two teenagers represented by their fathers. That's why I said we talked about this. Mary Louise Smith, her father, Frank, represented her and a young sister named Claudette Coley, mm. her alive, whose father, QP, represented her. Rosa Parks did not sue. As Fred Gray tells the story, he's the lawyer. What Fred Gray says, we, I didn't want to use Miss Parks because then the court might see they, they like to the courts try to dismiss stuff on procedural grounds so they don't deal with the substantive grounds. They would argue that since she is already in the system on the way toward a criminal conviction, for this trespass or not getting up from her seat. That's why you, no, no, no. We don't want anything that will, that will take away from the central issue, which is the 14th amendment. And they use Claudette Colvin, who still walks the earth, was a plaintiff in Browder versus Gale. This is the case, June the 5th, 1956, when the middle district court, federal court of, it, of Alabama said that the segregation laws on terms of public transportation in the city of Montgomery and the mayor of Montgomery, W.A. Tacky uh, Gale was the mayor. That's Browder versus Gale. The segregation laws in Montgomery on transportation and the state of Alabama violated the 14th Amendment. This was the legal ruling that broke the back of the laws in Montgomery. And when you read what Fred Gray says about it, I wish we had time and went, maybe we'll do a, we know what we, let's, let's do this one in narrative too, because I'm telling you, they tried to arrest him. They tried to get him disbarred. They tried to do everything they could. They told him, look, man, and this is one of the things I must mention. They said to him, look, great. He's a young cat. He says, I don't have any money. I'm a young lawyer. Okay. I'm a young lawyer. He went to a National Christian Institute, Church of Christ minister, which means he had a draft status as a minister. He's a legit minister. They revoked his draft status, made him 1A, said we're going to put you in the draft. I mean, they they, they turned everything. He went to law school to a place called the Western Reserve. It's now Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Guess what Case Western Reserve was uh, founded? 
Hudson, Ohio, John Brown turned off the microphone. Same place. I don't know. It's funny how these things converge. But at any rate, Fred Gray, they told him, look, man, if you will withdraw this case, we'll make sure you get more legal business than you can handle. Mm. And Gray says, you know what he says? He says, I knew they could do it because these are the guys that run the city. I knew I would be rich. I knew I would be taken care of. He said, I also knew that I could never go back to my community. He also, he said, I also knew that I would never be trusted. Again, if I did that, he held firm. Not only did Fred Gray argue this case with Thurgood Marshall, who he brought in, Robert Carter, and these other Alabama lawyers, not only did they win that case, he then went on to win win a string of victories, including the great Gamillion versus Lightfoot, which is the uh, Dr. Gamillion, Charles Gamillion out of Tuskegee, which is the voting rights case. But, and he's still alive. So, when we go to a place like Montgomery and the uh, the shrine that has been built down there, Brian Stevenson and them, EJI, and you know, my thing is we have to remember the violence, but please do not. And you know what? We will have to do one on this because I'm thinking about WT Alexander, who because other thing is once the money start coming in, oh my God! I, well, let me just—I got to show y'all this picture. This is a teaser. Y'all got to come here. Oh man, let me see. Mm-mm-mm. Can I find it? Can I find it? Come on, son. This is the oh now there he is with uh no no hold on because I gotta do this right. Uh, just so y'all can see. Because see, they all work together. And so, oh no, the Browder trial. Oh, I'm so bitter about this. It's gonna take me longer than don't be bitter. No, I, I want to make sure that I mean I want to show y'all this because it's important to understand. Because if you don't understand, okay, two pictures that I came upon it. In between them filing the case and the court deciding the case, he said, life goes on. He is here and his wife. They got married. Mm. <laughs> he said, in what we felt was a movement wedding, we invited the entire community. So <laughs> if you don't tell the story, it turns into Rosa Parks did what she did so that Barack could fly and America, we're better than this. Everybody <laughs> shut up. <laughs> shut up. Did you even ask the people why? Look. This is the this is the uh, the drugstore where they had stuff. My law office was near the drugstore operated by Rich Harris. Here, Rosa Parks and I visit with Rich and his employees, Annie Birch and Alberta Williams. If y'all don't know the name Rich Harris, Annie Birch, and Alberta Williams, you don't know the Montgomery bus boycott because all coordinating the cars, the rides, anytime something went down, somebody need bail, it was Mr. Harris, Miss Birch, and Miss Williams who were the nerve center for the boycott. But it now we look up and it's like one day when the glory comes and everybody get beat up on the bridge 500 billion times and let's make some statues of people taking the ass with them. Okay, look now. I understand that's what you are to the social structure. So the Breonna Taylor's a victim and George Floyd died for America. No, ask who you are to each other and look at the rich power of your institutions. The insurance companies, there was a brother out of Atlanta. Now, that's why I can't talk about him today. I had his book in there, Alexander, who Dr. King had to get in contact with and the Montgomery Improvement Association, Joanne Robinson and them, because the white people in Montgomery started, this white insurance company said, we will not insure your cars or your taxis. So they had to get insurance. So the brother from Atlanta steps in the gap, said, I got y'all. They wouldn't deposit the money in the banks from the donations that would come. So King and them put the money in black banks throughout the South. If you don't tell your story, which partly means monuments, which partly means memory rituals, if you don't tell your story, they will shrink that whole story down to a 20 minute speech on the Lincoln Memorial. And when you say something else about it, when can we get past this? Dr. King wanted you to be dealt with the content of your character. 
I'll stop there. <laughs> and how many people took the check? How many people are taking the checks today that Freddie Gray, Freddie Gray, who, mm, Come on now. No, that's ironic. His name is Fred Gray. Mm. I was, stop. Okay, we'll just, we'll stop. No, 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 no. That was rhetorical. I'm sitting with it. No, no, that's, you know what, Professor Hunter? Why do we know, why when we say Fred Gray, we immediately think. Rough ride in Baltimore, but we don't think. Freedom Ride in Montgomery. Ooh. This is the work that we are doing. And how they're connected. Yes. That's right. Oh. This is why this is important. You know, I wrote down mm. 10 names of people that you should know that we are we're going to have conversation, which we yeah. do every week. Uh, we're going to do part two of John Brown. You and I have to do that this week. But as we're building, literally, this is like the repository that will be here thousands of years after we're gone. We have to tell these stories. We have to. Uh, we have to build it. So I'm so and we have to tell them different ways. Somebody out there, it's gonna be one of you 15-year-olds or one of you 11 year olds or one of you six year olds. Somebody between now and a minute, y'all make, make make up a Fred, make up a Fred Gray poem where you got both Freddie Gray's in there. But that means you gotta go look up something about both of them. Because Freddie Gray's life didn't start with a rough ride, and Fred Gray, the other Fred Gray is still alive. Mm. Somebody let that be an assignment for one of the elementary or middle school students. This is this is the work. So you know, let me just again. I I, I know that the ancestors and uh, Holy Spirit, everybody mm. uh, who are in places we can't see, are responsible for this conversation. Next week, um, we I evoked the name or I evoked the city during our conversation. You and I earlier, we had a conversation earlier, which we rarely do, by the way. Yes, we come in yes. at eleven fifty nine thirty. <laughs> Show you. Show you. I'm just getting out of the car, run up the stairs, and I'm like, okay, I'm on. <laughs> we haven't even talked. But today we talked because I, something was in my spirit. Yeah. Thinking about, you know, the building out of the cities and, and, and how we aren't connecting the dots. Something happened over here. You talked about Tulsa. Yeah. You know, they rebuilt in a highway, Wilmington, a highway. And they're constantly, right now, gentrification, whatever that means. There's stuff going on. I talked, I brought up Flint, Michigan. Yes. As soon as we got off the phone, I get a, a, a text from the former mayor of Flint, Michigan. I don't understand how these things are happening, but she will be joining us next week. We're going to be talking about what's actually happening there because this is the work we're doing live in this space. And then the narrative, we are building the blocks for our knowledge and remembering of who we are. So no one can ever have an excuse. I didn't know. That's right. You want to have a place where you can go and you can take your family members and the people in your life That's and right. say, we're going to know some things about ourselves because it's here. That's and right. And it's filtered not through a lens uh, of, of people who want you to see yourself in a certain way, but through the lens of who we've always been to one another. And I'm so incredibly humbled and, and honored to, to have uh, this opportunity to do this work with you because it feels like um, a mission. No, we, are guided. we are guided. We are guided. And please understand that as we're doing this work, we are doing this work. I don't want, I mean, I just feel like we have to continue to articulate that because we have to make a distinction between what we are doing, which means we have a standard we must adhere to. We won't always make it, but we're going to always try and always work hard to get close. And that that standard is different. I would say, you would say, we would say better, but different for sure. 
Because what we just talked about today with South Carolina and Memorial uh, Red Dead Decoration Day, Wilbur Jenkins, this book just came out, Catherine Clinton, in conversation with Catherine Clinton, who has written a lot about this. Catherine Clinton, David Blight, the usually ones you're going to see them making comments. In fact, my man Clint Smith in his book, how the word is passed. He talking to David Blighton now. That's good, bro. But you didn't talk to Wilbur Jenkins. Now, I don't know. I don't think your editor made you take out the black man. I don't think you knew about him, which is why even your writing has a certain appeal to, you know, please. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And that's not a dig. That's just a notion that if you're going to get this check, you need to make this relevant to me. You understand? But in this book, it came out on Confederate statues and memorization, right? I'm not telling y'all to get this book. I'm going to get it because I'm going to read it all if I can. But you have to understand that that framework even is about the social structure. Now, we want to improve the social structure. We want to transform it. But we don't want to transform it so that we can prove to somebody we're better than they think we are or we're worthy or we're good enough to use the phrase that you wrote. It's going to haunt me. It's not even haunt. It's going to animate me. We're doing it because that's what we've always done. We're human in the world. They didn't bar white people from the, the decoration day ceremonies, nor did they ask white people to paint those fences. They let the children do it or to bring those flat white because we are building a people. Now, if y'all want to build a people and you want to say we're better than that, stop going back to George Washington because that's a lie. And for the black people that want to continue to go back to George Washington and say, yes, he was a slave person, but, but, the, but the language, okay, you be quiet too, at least on the narrative and what we doing, because what we doing this, and then people are over here. It's like this is the last thing I need. today. Kara Walker was in the um Financial Times, the artist Kara Walker. Wow. wow. And you know, she she says this, and I thought it was very interesting. She said um that there was a very disruptive force in my household for the entirety of my childhood and young adult life. And the unwillingness of my family to deal with that is sort of a polarized, bifurcated life where you're taught you're caught in somebody's mental illness. Now at 50-ish, it's interesting to look at the sort of work I've been making and to realize that yes, it's couched in the language of slavery or the past of America, but it also comes from these family dynamics. Living with somebody else's pain is tricky. Mm. It is clear she means this also as a wider statement of our human condition. Now I'm gonna tell you, this is how the social structure does this. Let me tell you something. I'm reading this and that quote, and she does. Y'all know Kara Walker's work. She's always disturbed engagement with, and it's not work I would do. I mean, you know, that's why I like Carrie James Marshall. And I mean, in other words, I'm painting for me and y'all are overseeing. What I'm not doing is continue to trouble the troubled past of America with slavery. And no, okay, it's great work. You're creative. That's great. But that's not what I'm doing. But when I'm reading this, she didn't make a hard disconnect between the history of enslavement in this country and mental illness. In fact, when she says it's sort of polarized, bifurcated life when you're caught in somebody's mental illness. Guess what black people are in America? We're caught in somebody's mental illness. It's called the United States of America. We're caught in somebody's mental illness. But see how the editor, how the writer cleans it up, though? That last sentence I read is not a quote from her. It is from the writer of this piece who says it is clear. She, meaning Walker, means, okay, so now you're interpreting. It is clear she means this also as a wider statement of our human condition. You skipped over <laughs> the sickness of enslavement and the direct correlation. And then, of course, once I, somebody like me brings this up, I'm sure the response will be, well, I thought that was implied in the quote. Don't be slick. We know FT comes out of Great Britain. You forming like Voltron with your American partners because there are no national boundaries when it comes to whiteness. We, on the other hand, think we writing for separate publications. We writing for the New York Times or the Financial Times. They're the same damn publication in terms of the social structure and the ideology. 
we have to think differently. So what we're doing now is for us and it's going to help everybody. But the minute we confuse us standing in us having this conversation, we're trying to convince other people of our humanity. We might as well shut it down and go over and try to hustle and shake a little jangle leg for a dollar. And we can do what Fred Gray didn't do. I'll shut it down, but give me the business. What that jangle leg look like? <laughs> you know what it looked like look 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 and go back watch TV. <laughs> the whole field of television just be called jangle leg. Oh. <laughs> you know, jangle. Hey, look, look, ask him Gullah Geechee what a jangle leg is. Call me Brown know what a jangle leg is. That, that's why everybody laughed when he said you want something mama's cooking. Why people oh. like hmm, mama's cooking? You know, don't worry. We speak without 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 spending too much time. That's that is what uh freedom looks like. There's no need for journalism. Yes. There's no need for media. People now have direct connection to all things. And uh, I like it. That. I like it. Me too. Me too. Oh, I should mention. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Oh, and we're going to get all of the shirts. So shout out to Senyata again because she connected me that with not playing. To did your maroons. Yeah. Everybody wants. So he's like, I'm going to put it in narrative so everybody can have access to it. Good. So Details and then he's going to design some more shirts. We're yeah, going to have a car collection because every week you oh, got Lord. that um yeah I'm just inspires people. So what is well, that? I, I'm, I'm repping Dillard because this is my man Walter Kimbrough who is the president of Dillard University. Uh, he and Dr. Beatty actually were in school together. This is a little bit of inside baseball for you. When y'all see Dr. Beatty on the other side, beginning in the new year in September, you'll see him. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Kimbrough at the time was a graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, who some people know because that's where Paul Ryan went to school, but that's completely irrelevant. Mario Beatty went there as undergrad. He pledged alpha under uh, under Dr. Kimbrough. <laughs> but Kimbrough coming out of New Orleans and Atlanta, he's the president of Dillard. And in terms of a black college president, he, he was at Philander Smith. Now he's at Dillard. And I love that brother in part because his heroes, his genealogy, talk about a baton. His heroes, Samuel Du Bois Cook, who was the president many years of Dillard, very important brother. In fact, Duke's got a Sandy, uh, Sandy Darity is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center director. That's cute. But Samuel Du Bois Cook was the president of Dillard. <laughs> he was an HBCU. And his other hero is a man who Samuel Du Bois Cook kind of got meant to uh, jagged by the great Benjamin Elijah Mays. So when you think about who should be leading are educational institutions. I've always believed, regardless of talent, regardless of vision, that this should be intellectual, this should be academics. You can surround yourself with good numbers, people. You can say, but if once you lose the grounding, the intellectual work should be at the center of the educational enterprise, you basically become, you, you, you leave yourself open to becoming a tool of other people's interests. Because they, they're saying, okay, how many people do we need to slide into this industry? How many can we jobs? We need? How many of these people do we need to pull out? And then they come and say, okay, this way should be your curriculum. This should, this, here's the, here are the dollars you can earn. And then you turn around and say, now you can give lip service to the other stuff, but what you mm -mm. see academics, mm -mm. intellectuals stop. And those are the kind of people who usually get in trouble. Good trouble. Well, good good trouble for sure, but not good trouble like John Lewis because anyway, that's a whole oh, yeah, Ooh, let me not no, let me back up off that. Shout out to my ancestor. Respect okay. John Lewis, yeah. no question. 
I love you so much. I love you too. <laughs> to everybody all over the world. Appreciate y'all. And sign up for Narrative. We have a whole lot of scholarships now. Thank you, Tanya Pinkers. Thank you, Michael Harriet. Thank you all the people that donated. And I know it's many, many, many of you who donated classes. We have a whole list of people who are getting scholarships as well. So this is going to be for everybody. Oh, I should mention, look, I can't can't help myself. I was rereading this. Remember, we were talking about Boardwalk Empire a couple of weeks ago, just mentioned. And y'all watch Boardwalk Empire. Um, you know how how they did Marcus Garvey dirty with one of the great actors in American history, Jeffrey Wright. They made the Garveyite look like a crazy thug. And even though Casper Holstein is also an inspiration for that figure. But here's the interesting thing about it. Lucky Luciano was taken down by people say in the social structure, Thomas Dewey. Thomas Dewey eventually became governor of New York's kind of thing. But if you don't know this name, we're going to talk about her in there, the Professor Hunter. This right her, <laughs> she was black and a woman and a prosecutor, a graduate of Smith College, granddaughter of slaves. I say enslaved people, dazzlingly and as dazzlingly, dazzling, as dazzlingly unlikely a combination as one could imagine in New York of the 1930s. This is people talking about the social structure. She's not unusual. She just got a chance to do what everybody else couldn't do. And without the strategy she devised, Lucky Luciano, the most powerful mafia boss in history, would never have been convicted. When special prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey selected 20 lawyers to help him clean up the city's underworld, she was the only member of his team who was not a white male, Eunice Hunton Carter. (laughs) This sister is the one that took out Lucky Luciano. Now, (laughs) so I'm saying we got to do her because... She comes out the hunting family. Where do we talk about her family, her parents, her brother Alphaeus, who was Du Bois's man? On the, oh my God! And her son, a oh, grandson, I guess Stephen, grand a grand nephew, Stephen. Of course, Stephen Carter, the novelist, the Yale. But, I interviewed him. Yeah. Oh I yeah. Had, for that for that book for that well, very. You did. So yeah. we got. Oh good, good. Oh, we, you got to pull that one out the archives because I want to hear that one. Oh my gosh. So anyway, I just mentioned that because I, I was rereading and I said, I'm going to mention that to folks. Go get you. Man, that sister was bad. Yes. Well, uh, we'll see y'all next week. See y'all next week. Love you. <laughs> Listen, I love you too. Next week, um, Karen Weaver will be joining us as well to talk, oh, about, yes! yeah, to talk about how what's happening in Flint. But Flint is a microcosm of what's going on throughout this country. And uh, we all live somewhere. So we got to we got to pay attention. No question. No All right, brother. See you next. See you on Wednesday. Love you. See you. Love you too. See you. <laughs>